Hello and welcome to the All Terrain Podcast, brought to you by the Youth and Children's Ministry Unit of the Salvation Army in the United Kingdom and Ireland Territory. My name is Matt White and in each episode I'll be inviting a guest to take a hypothetical hike with me as we find out about their real life journey to this point. Along the way, they'll make four choices and answer four questions. In this episode, our guest is Dr. Bethany Sullereder. Bethany is a research fellow at the Laudato Sea Research Institute at Campion Hall at the University of Oxford. She specializes in theology concerning evolution and the problem of suffering. She's the author of God, Evolution and Animal Suffering, The Odyssey Without a Fall, and Why Is There Suffering? A Pick Your Own Theological Expedition. And I had the chance to read that book before I interviewed Bethany, and it's absolutely brilliant. So let's get stuck into this, but I promise you, you're going to want to get a hold of that book as well. Hi, Bethany. Welcome to the Alter in Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's great to have you on the show. Now, you're currently in Oxford, where you work there, but you've got a big change coming up. Tell us about your new job. Yeah, well, I'm, I've uh, been offered a lectureship at the University of Edinburgh in Science and Religion. So Amazing. I'll get to go do a lot of the online teaching there yeah. and uh, really engage in this subject I love. Is that is that a move to Edinburgh as well? Does that come with a physical move? Yeah, it does. Well, that's good. It's good. It's good to kind of it's good to experience some great Celtic hospitality, I think, as well. And as a Canadian, there's a great affinity exactly. with the Scots uh, because we're both small cultures on the yeah. on the edge of a much larger one. And oh, so yeah, I've always felt just right at home there. Oh, it's going to be great. Well, congratulations. That's fabulous. That's absolutely brilliant. Currently, you're at Oxford University. What is it you do there? Tell us a little bit about your specialisms and what it is that your life and work entails. So I'm a research fellow at the Laudato Si Research Institute, which is a part of Campion Hall, one of the, the, the Jesuit permanent private hall here in Oxford. So most of my days, I have the privilege of hanging around, reading books, talking to interesting people and trying to write something about it. Hold on, hold uh, on. What, what is this job? That No one told me about this job. This sounds amazing. Where does this job come from? <laughs> no one mentioned this in careers class. They're, they're fabulous, but they're very insecure because they only <laughs> ever last, you know, a year or two and then you're back on the job market. So uh, oh, wow. it's, it's great. Um, what I'm working on right now is just the question of what do we do if we cannot stop climate change? Wow. Uh, so I was planning to do something much more positive, something about the philosophical foundations of ecological restoration. And my whole project was built around spending time with uh, restoration ecologists in the Rocky Mountains, mm. and then COVID hit. Wow. And so I was sitting in my room, you know, unable to even go outside for, you know, more than an hour a day and thought, well, what do, what do I do with this project? So I just thought there's so many people who are asking, how do we stop climate mm. change? Um, and I think that's absolutely right. That's very good. But I just wanted, you know, one person to start thinking about, okay, if we can't stop this avalanche, how do we begin to ride it out? Yeah. And that, that fits really well with all the grim and depressing things I've done in the past. Uh, <laughs> so a lot of my work is about suffering. It's about yeah. death. I did my PhD on the question of how could a good God create through evolution when it involves suffering, death, extinction, and so mm. on. And then I moved from there to Oxford, worked in administration for a few years, which was absolutely great. People often feel like if they leave the academic track, they'll mm. never get back. Mm. And I just, there's no blueprint. You can go yeah. all over the place and yeah. still, you know. Uh, and then I got to work with Alistair McGrath for two years. I was working on this thing I called Compassionate Theodicy, which is sort of how do we get theodicy out of these ivory towers where it's carefully constructed with impossible language and the mm. grimmest descriptions of suffering such that when you read it you just weep and then you can't think anymore and it's mm. it's just difficult so um and that's and that's where the book that you read uh came out of um it's yes. called why is there suffering yeah that's your that's your latest book and it's um I, i've mentioned it in the intro already we're going to talk about it a lot i'm sure in the podcast but it's absolutely fascinating because it takes the format of a kind of a choose your own adventure for a theology book uh, and I actually wrote about this on my social media this week because I read the book and I never liked Choose Your Own Adventures growing up. I was always just like, <laughs> you're the author. Tell me what happens. But so I have to say, I came to the book a little bit nervous. And also because I knew I was going to be speaking to you. I didn't want to have to do that thing where I had to sort of not answer quite like, did you like my book, Matt? And I sort of just roll my head around like neither yes or no. But So I was a little nervous coming to it. But, but I have to tell you, it was utterly brilliant. Like 
it was also really disarming in lots of ways and and all sorts of other things. I'm going to talk to you about all of this in the episode uh, because I honestly, I, it's going to come up in so many ways. But the book is utterly brilliant. I know I've said it once already. I've said it twice already. That's the third. I'm just going to keep saying it for the whole episode because it. I really am encouraging people to get hold of this book because even people who'll say to me, look, I, I love I love reading theology. I love studying theology. And often people say to me, oh, I don't, I don't like reading them. And, and there's lots of reasons for that. I think you've created something that literally anyone who has an interest in mm. theology, and especially that big question that we we all have an interest in, why is there suffering? I think you've created a resource that that anyone can pick up at any stage, no matter how much you've read or not read, because the format is just brilliant. Anyway, I'm going to talk about your book more later. But first, we should do this. We should do this because I do have to. I do have to say one thing. Of course, your book is essentially a hypothetical hike which asks big questions about people's spiritual formation. So, how do we get our copyright infringement from you? I mean, how do, how do we do that? <laughs> I'm excited to find out where we're doing some of these things with you because obviously you have written this kind of hypothetical hike. First off, where are we walking? Well, in in my mind, where we're walking mm-hmm. is is through the landscape that I built up as I did my PhD. So as I did my PhD, I was reading all these books for suffering. And I started to just map out the various options that Christians and non-Christians put forward for why why there's suffering in the world. And and I I think in pictures, you know, you have some people who sort of think in paragraphs, and they think in logical forms. I don't, I Mm. I have pictures. And so my writing's all over the Mm. place, because I'm just trying to describe the picture that's in my head. So this is a perfect book to write. So you head out, you know, in in on 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 the road. uh, And then and then you come to a three way uh, fork in the road, and you can either go the path of sort of God, loves us and is all powerful sort of the classic god of christian theism Mm. or you could decide well uh god exists but really doesn't care about us so Mm uh the deistic god the sort of um some somebody like uh, wesley wildman for example would say god absolutely Mm. exists but is not in the caring business and then Mm. and then and then i have the there is no god um and as I wrote this, I tried to really defend each of the positions as carefully mm-hmm. as I could. And so there's no sort of sense of, at least I tried to make sure that there were no straw men. And then to double check, I'd go to people who defended those views and say, read this yeah. over, double check. So, you know, yeah. for the atheist one, I was able to talk to my colleague, Richard Dawkins here. He was yeah. kind enough to read it over and just say, yeah, there's more that could be said, but this yeah. is this is valid. So people sometimes read it and think like, are you just setting, is this a Christian apologetic? And I'm going, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. it's not, yeah. you know. Yeah. So yeah. then, uh, you know, if, if you, depending on each one of those, which way you choose, then it leads to further questions. And there's the, yeah. there's the mountains of mystery, you know, um, there are the, the open plains of freedom, you know. I love this because this is like a crossover episode because in a way we ask about kind of a place that we might walk, but actually your book actually has a map at the back and you've drawn the kind of landscape. So in a way, I don't have to go and Google it afterwards like I normally do when people tell me where we're walking because I can sort of see it. And there's, you're right, there's islands, there's mountains, there's there's just so many incredible things. There's like even, I'm just looking at like point thirty three on the map. There's like, there's like this little kind of like, just little jetty that sits out that you could sit and fish off the end of. It's just yeah. all so beautifully done. I, I honestly, I'm so excited about this because effectively we're, we're going to go on this walk that you've created in your book on our podcast, which I think is just amazing. And I think that starting point of the three roads, uh, I think that's a really fascinating starting point because I think the option to give someone a, a book, a theology book, essentially, that gives them the chance after sort of the introduction to go, uh, yeah, I'm going to go down the there is no God route. Mm-hmm. I just think is 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 really really fascinating. Okay, so that's where our hypothetical hike is taking place. It's taking place in the world of your book, which mm-hmm. I love. Now we do have to bring some people with us. So you've got to choose one living, one dead, one fictional. Who's on the walk? Oh, who do one one fictional? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, my mind immediately, of course, goes to Sherlock Holmes because I mean. <laughs> But okay. of, 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 of people that I'd, I'd, I'd like to keep me honest. I feel like okay. Sherlock Holmes would, would keep me honest on a walk like Good this. Good choice. Uh, Good choice. I think that in uh, somebody, somebody living, 
Oh, that's tough. There's so many people I love, I love walking with. Um, I think I would probably take someone like my PhD supervisor, Chris Southgate. I mean, he's, mm. he's an expert in, in both uh, theological and physical terrain. And I have indeed wandered across um, uh, the Dartmoor with him many times oh, wow. in, in yeah. you know, the, the, the wilds. And, and so, you know, if I need a sure guide, I think, I think that's who I might take. Okay. And okay. Uh, somebody dead. Um, hmm. Well, I think you need a wild mystic in most situations. So I'm going to go with Julian of Norwich. <laughs> oh, another one I've got literally ah, right in front of me. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know there it is right at my desk. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. I mean, what a, yes, what a lineup. Julian of Norwich. Oh, yeah. What an incredible addition. Now, um, we answer the same four questions here on the All Terrain podcast. Every guest does it. And the first one is this. How do you face change? Uh, poorly is is the answer. Um, <laughs> I I would um, just just yesterday we woke our college tortoise up from her hibernation. And the first mm-hmm. thing that she did was go into her house and just stay there all day. <laughs> and I think I think that's that's you know, if I had a you know, my 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 spiritual animal in relation to change is much like the tortoise. Mm. I just want to <laughs> stay in my spot very a tiny bit. Um, yeah. and you know, have people into my into my life. Okay, yeah. I think what what allows me to face change better than I do in my personality would be being able to to receive change as gift from God. Mm. And so to say, I cannot see the future. I'm I'm incredibly short-sighted when it comes to the possibilities of change. And to mm. actually say, uh, all the things that make what I have valuable were all achieved by change at one point and they were not things that I could foresee Mm. and so as as change comes in then I say okay I uh the things I love and value now are going to change but it will be the discovery of new things that I will love and and trust Mm. God in the in the bringing of of that change and and God's provision and and that's never failed which isn't to say change has been hard it has been but yeah I mean I guess so by your accent I can tell you are not from Oxford Canadian so you have you have yeah you have obviously you have obviously made quite significant changes and you've got one on the horizon as well so I guess have those guiding principles those sense of I'm going to do this because I I may not be able to see the goodness ahead of it, but I'm going to do it. Has that guided those moves as well? Have that has that been something instrumental in those parts of your absolutely. life? Absolutely, um, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the things that has been a defining feature of my life since about the middle of my master's, I had I had um, a uh i would i i'm not sure whether to call it a spiritual breakdown or a breakthrough sometimes those things are quite similar and it had to do with when i was applying for um my phd uh particularly for uh, a bursary after it already been accepted uh i had one of my professors write a letter of recommendation and and she came back to me and said i will write one for you but first i'd like you to write one of your own and i was like oh man this is the worst and so i spent all night trying to figure out the trigonometry of how i thought she reflected on me so she could reflect me to other people who would then think about me and and i just realized how much of my life was like this game of shadow puppets where i was trying to contort myself so that people would see a projected image and, and, and that image involved success of career, success in, you know, in these various ways. And just that night, I, I sort of realized this. It was like holding a mirror up to my soul. And I went, oh, <laughs> look, wow. look at how, how twisted I've become in order yeah. to project a certain image. And so since wow. then, I've, I've been able to 
at least have the intention, if not always the success, of saying, I'm not chasing success as the world defines yeah. it. I'm not chasing, you know, and ironically, once I did that, the scholarship came through. I came into Oxford. I've, you know, you know, I've had I've had that success, but but all the way along, I've never, I've simply said, okay, this opportunity has opened up. I will pursue it as 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 faithfully as I know how, because I think this is worthwhile doing. And when the end comes, if there's nothing beyond it, I'll go find some other opportunity, you know. And so constantly just saying, you know, my my life is is an offering to God and and to the church, and that's what's really important in what I do, not whether. I, I, I write the most important monograph of da, 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 or not whether I get a permanent job, not whether I, you know, and so I don't know if I'm just rambling at this point or preaching. I'm not, you know, these things all, these things all we'll take, we'll take both. But <laughs> I think, I think that, um, that is what allows, uh, the, the, the change to also be, um, something, something that you can embrace is because yes. I'm not pushing for a particular goal. I'm saying, yes. you know, my life is in the hand of God. Mm. Wow. Your work then currently looks at a particular change that we are aware of, that we know is happening in our climate to our mm -hmm. planet. And, and ask, I guess, a very difficult question in terms of not what, what can we do to stop this, which is like you say, is the one people are asking, but but what do we do if we can't, which effectively means you're asking the question, this change is happening. Mm -hmm. How are we going to face it in, in, in a way? What are you discovering or learning in that that is kind of speaking to you right now or or kind of speaks to this question? Yeah, well, one of the one of the things that I, I kind of looked up and hadn't realized before I, I've done a, a, I've studied a little bit of geology as as an amateur, you know, as someone who loves the subject but isn't professional yeah. in it. Uh, and so I just started looking up the paleoclimate. So how do geologists think that the climate has changed over the time that life has been on Earth? And one of the things that I that sort of shocked me was that we're in an unusually cold part of Earth's history. So if you look from the beginning of the Cambrian explosion, 540 million years ago, when you first start getting complex animal life, uh, you know, building up through the dinosaurs and all of that, probably 60 to 70% of that time, there was no polar ice caps, there were no glaciers, there was no, you know, so the average temperature of the Earth over that period has been much warmer than now. Um, but if you look in the in the relatively short past, say after the last mm. half a million years, we're actually in an unusually warm spot. <laughs> we, you know, mm. the average temperature is about four degrees mm. colder than this. Mm. So we've we've been teetering on sort of a knife mm. edge, which is not a normal resting place for the planet. So it's sort of we have absolutely climate change is caused by humans doing all this fossil and, um, you know, burning all these fossil fuels, absolutely, we are changing it in a way that it wouldn't have changed. What would have happened naturally is we would have gone into another ice age in about 1500 mm. years. But if you think of that, Oxford, the whole UK, Canada, Northern United States, Northern Europe, would have all eventually been crushed under glaciers and we would have moved. So I think, I think it's actually putting into perspective that we have gotten used to a particular thing that is absolutely short by, by, by the sort of earth standard, this little mm -hmm. blip of, of, of constancy in our climate. And we've taken that as God's intention for how it's always meant to be. And we've taken that as we, we own this, this is how it's supposed to be. But actually, if you look at the longer history, change, is the only thing that's certain. Um, and so I think that that helps me kind of say, this is the end of life as we've known it, but it's certainly not the end of life. It's certainly not the end of the planet. Mm -hmm. It will mean dramatic and, and painful changes, 
uh, for humans because our infrastructure is so finely tuned to, to the climate we've expected. And I'm in no way saying there won't be horrific suffering associated with what's coming. But at the same time, from a Christian point of view, uh, death is not the worst thing. Suffering is not the worst thing. And that's where someone like Julian of Norwich is so helpful because mm. she comes along and she says, you know, all shall be well, all, all shall be well and all manner of the things shall be well. And this suffering that she went through, her physical pain was actually something she initially prayed for. And that's a perspective mm. of the church that we've lost today. And probably it's a bit excessive, but this idea that when we suffer, it's an opportunity to participate with the suffering of Jesus on the cross is, is something that we're very averse to and absolutely can get pathological where people think the more they suffer, the holier they are. And I'm not defending that, but I am saying when suffering happens, it can become a spiritual opportunity. It can be a place where we can grow in that. And I think that, um, I think that death with sin is a problem. You know, I think that that death can be for evil reasons, as we're seeing in the Ukraine right now. But I think death in general is part of God's good creation. And I think that in the lives of saints and martyrs, we begin to see God's purpose for death, where it's this joyful transition into God's presence and in, into the gates of the new kingdom. So I, I don't, I want to both acknowledge the suffering and the tragedy, but also say, but this is what Christian faith is for. This is when Christian faith mm. really gets going, is when times are tough. I want us to come back to that. I guess, uh, just to, to sort of circle back to the, the, the question around climate change, I guess the there is a question about then the inequality mm -hmm. around it, because just as you sort of spoke about, in a way, I guess we can look at it. And it's a fascinating perspective you've shared on that in terms of the changes that will come and things that are going to happen and the fact that that will have tremendous impact. But I guess at this moment in time, the, the, the man-made, the human-caused uh, climate change is causing direct suffering to others and there's an inequality mm -hmm. in that so how does one reconcile the current inequality with the fact that what is coming uh is on the way yeah, or yeah, or is yeah. you, see, you see what i mean there, there's a there's a kind of a a present future that yeah. i'm trying to just and i think i think i think this is where saying climate change is going to happen becomes useful because as long as mm. we're saying we can still recover the situation then we're going to move towards saying oh, we're going to put all our resources to developing this particular, you know, technological solution that's going to save the day, and it, and it probably won't. Whereas if we say climate change is happening, then those refugees, then those people who are suffering become the top of the priority list. So I'm, I'm actually saying the inequalities are really bad. And so people, you know, the, the classic question is, what is one thing I can do uh, about climate change? And I'm saying, change your perspective on migrants. As, as we've seen in this war in the last few weeks, migrants are not people who are lazy. They're not people who are evil. They're not people who are morally compromised because they've had to leave their home. These are people who are victims of systems that we've largely put in place. And we can do things pressure our governments to change migration policy to allow climate migrants to to come find a place that's livable when it's really wow. our 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 sin corporately that has that has made where they have lived for centuries unlivable in the first place wow what i love about some of the way that, that that particularly academics think is that you'll say something because the thing you said about climate change coming i can absolutely in, in my head i am hearing the emails of complaint mm -hmm. right that we that that comes and i'm sure you experience yeah, yeah. this when you talk about climate change because immediately everyone goes yeah but what about this and and, and i have a question about what about equality what about people but actually what you're advocating for is so profoundly uh like world changing and life changing that 
there is so nothing glib about what you're saying. The, the, your response is, if this is the case, then we need to be more active, not tinkering, not mm-hmm. messing, not getting caught up in little mm-hmm. things here. It's big, structural, you know, equal stuff. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, a lot of it is we have a limited pool of resources and we have to think about how we use them. So I think it was New York recently said we're we're spending four billion more dollars adding better sea structures to protect it. And you go for goodness sake, start moving the city. Like this is wow. not going to survive a hundred feet of of you know like how high do you build your walls before you start saying like look we see what's coming. But I've got to ask you, you say, let's move the city. You know, it's not, you know, it's not that simple though. Because like, it's, again, it's one of those things where like, you say, let's move the city and, you know, it makes absolute sense, but that's still a huge thing to say. So if we don't move the city, look what happens. We we spend billions and billions and billions and billions yeah. of, of dollars building seawalls and then they don't work. And then the city is flooded and everybody has to move and we have a mass migration crisis <laughs> an emergency that, yeah an emergency yeah. right so you're yeah. still going to have to move the city there's not going to be a city left so the question is do we have do we wait till there's another katrina mm. right that destroys the city mm. or do we start saying we're going to put incentives to get people out of here but then like you say so rightly we have in this particular moment of human history we have built our lives around a certain level of what is often quite new. Infra- I mean, if you want to know how new our infrastructure is, you know, turn your yeah. Wi-Fi off for a day and see how it goes. Turn a box off you didn't yeah. have in your house 10 years ago and see how your yeah. life goes. You know, wearable tech, like phone, you know, we're having this conversation. Our infrastructure is actually very recent, but has become almost sacred. Like it's been yeah. this way forever. Like, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and just our sense of land, right? One of the, one of the things that becomes an anti-mite, well, this is our land. Mm. Well, come on for how long? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. it, 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 each one of us comes into the world and we're, yeah. we're, we're moved into these ways of seeing uh, the, you know, ownership and, you know, yeah. even, even the concept of, of land ownership is yeah. relatively yeah. new, oh, yeah. you know? And so I think, I think, we, you know, so I'm just asking, kind of uncomfortable questions and, and yeah you... take kind of off that there's no kind of in these uncomfortable <laughs> questions that's a but very I classic keep... academic thing to say i'm just asking kind of uncomfortable questions uh no i just want to just want to stop you there <laughs> yeah. i mean they're but deeply I mean, uncomfortable questions and uh, i mean i could i could keep going with them so by changing the perspective of this change is going to come that doesn't negate or or somehow make okay the cause that, you know, you've used the word sin a couple of times, and that's a, a really interesting loaded word for people in different ways. But but the, mm-hmm. the behavior that has caused that to happen by by saying that you're still going to face it, that, that, that what is coming is coming. It strikes me that in both your work and in your personal life, that seems to really underpin how you face these things is that almost a sense of, is inevitability the right word? Is that like, is that fair? Yeah. Well, I think again, whether whether it was naturally caused or whether you know whether yeah. it would have happened naturally or whether we're facing what we're caused now, yeah. the change was inevitable. Yeah. So you know, it, it it we don't live on a planet with a stable climate. Yeah. Having yeah. said that, I think my one worry with this line of thought is people will think, oh, it's happening, so I don't have to do anything. I'm just yeah. going to keep living the way I do. Um, and I think that the very easier answer to that is to say, well, one, if we keep burning fossil fuels at the rate we are, the 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 rapidity of the change yeah. is going to keep getting more and more rapid, yeah. and that could seriously be much worse. Yeah. So even even out of self interest, we yeah. need to to stop burning um, aggressively, far more aggressively yeah. than we are. Yeah just to slow the rate of change um yeah and i could i could get onto that about how we subsidize fuel and we won't insulate houses you know i it just 
it it, it yeah, right. don't, don't get me started but but i think i think what's interesting and this is and this is i guess again there's something about the way you you present this that i guess in many ways is going to really impact people differently because many people aren't used to hearing the conversation so matter of fact but with such a a, a huge uh, a huge ask then that follows it we're used to other people kind of saying ah oh, climate change is going to happen blah 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 like you say oh, i don't have to do anything or we're used to people kind of shouting going no we've got to do this we've got to do this we've got to do this and actually what you're presenting is a kind of a, a sort of a strange kind of like <laughs> hybrid of like yeah it is going to happen but that's no reason to be blasé but actually the actions we've got to take are so much bigger than the ones that that you're hearing shouted yeah. about so yeah. Fascinating. The, the other thing, so the other thing is, so when I was studying theodicy, when I, when I wrote the book that we were talking about, the, um, I was looking at how some of the psychology of how people react and how resilient they are based on their explanation of why they're suffering. Mm. So this is looking at Jamie Aiton's work and, and sort of how perspectives yeah. of God yeah. and that kind of thing shift how people, how people suffer. And I think that one of the things that struck me is one of the worst forms to hold of, of sort of uh, why there is suffering is God is punishing me for, for my sin. You know, this is all happening to me out of judgment. And then it struck me that in the climate crisis, that's the only explanation we have. Mm. You were selfish, you were greedy, you did everything wrong and therefore the world is coming to an end, you evil person. And, you know, that's not motivating. <laughs> mm. that, that, is the, 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 that is the explanation in, in the theodicy realm mm. that has um, the least resilience, the most I'm just going to roll over and, mm. and give up or just be, you know, racked by guilt. So I was, I was trying to think, okay, what, mm. what is an alternative way that we could talk about it? Because, yes, this is human caused, but also it's in the frame of a natural world where, where that change is natural. Mm. So, you know, we're, we're part and parcel of the natural world. We're not the first species to cause climate change, right? The first time was 2.4 billion years ago when cyanobacteria released a, a toxic gas into the air through their metabolism, which nearly killed themselves, caused widespread climate change, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But do you know what that gas was? No. Oxygen. They nearly destroyed themselves by releasing too much oxygen mm. in the atmosphere. It went from zero to 19%. Mm. And that was a tragedy. It was a horrible thing that mm. happened to them, but it became the foundation for mm. all aerobic metabolism that we now rely on. So it's one of those, you know, Tolkien uses the word eucatastrophe. Mm. There's a sudden and unexpected turn for the good. And I think, yeah, okay, we have a tragedy. Absolutely. But let me look out for the eucatastrophe in it. Let me look for the next turning that life will have. Mm. And let's work towards that. Let's work towards the way that this is going to make us face injustice. That this is mm. going to confront us with the fact that we don't own land, mm. that we are products of the land, grown out of the land, and that we're all visitors here. You know, let's see how this helps us to die well, because mm. we don't have a concept of that in our culture. Mm. We just have death as something to be resisted at all points. And yet the Christian tradition has this rich tradition of how to die well that we can learn from in this moment. Question two is how do we move through suffering? And we're sort of halfway there. We've gone there, come back, gone there, come back. But I have to say <laughs> it, otherwise people get lost, myself included. So right. we've, we were just talking about that. And, and, and it, it does bring us to the book. And, and uh, the book, Why Is There Suffering? Pick Your Own Theological Expedition. And you talked about one of the, the big findings in that. And I, and I find this particularly interesting about how people uh, react to suffering, people's resilience and all that. And, you, and you've shared a little bit about that already. And the worst one being my suffering is a, is a punishment for my sin. Uh, tell us a little bit about what some of that learning uncovered uh, for you in terms of how we move through suffering. Yeah, well, I think the, the first time this kind of came onto my radar, as it were, was I was I was a fresh faced Bible college student in my second year and um, 
ended up in in a in a church situation that was extremely toxic, mm -hmm. just really, really damaging. And I remember kind of, you know, facing that in the same way you face any major trauma of why God, how mm -hmm. can you let this happen? How can you let, you know? Um, and what was interesting was that the advice I got from other people. So some people said, God's preparing you for future ministry, you know, and I'd just be like, <laughs> you know, I'm ready to throw This is, you know, this is what it is. I don't want any part of this. And yet some part of my brain said, they've been through significant suffering as well mm. and they're sharing what got them through mm. and somebody else would say you know god has a plan for this god will redeem this and again i was like mm. i don't want any part of this i'm handing back my ticket you know <laughs> um, but i knew that they had been helped by that mm. i knew that they had gone through significant suffering and that had been what got them through. Yeah. And so I ended up going down kind of open theist paths where I said, you know, God doesn't ever intend suffering, but God can work to redeem it, even though this was no part of any plan. And that helped me. Mm. And so I just sort of, I, I had this sense that actually, I think that different models of suffering may get different people through and that's okay. Yeah. Because ultimately we don't know the answer. There's no way to get to the answer. And so the question is, what builds my relationship with God? Which, which of these paths helps me to draw closer to God and see God as loving and kind and merciful and mm. loving me in the midst of this? And I think that that is different for different people. And, and that sort of stopped. So it's sort of you know, then, then the emails complaining about the horrific relativists you have on your show will, will also come flooding in. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a relativist so much as having a sense that our theologies are too small. And so they're always partial. They're right. always going to be glimpses of the divine. And where we find ourselves in those glimpses yes. um, can be different. Can I, can I read your own words to you? Because I wrote this one down in my, in my phone as <laughs> sure. I read your book. The truth is that theologians don't describe what God is really like. We only work with models of God, like a model car or train. Our models are laughably smaller and simpler than the real thing. I loved that. And I think uh, the way you just said it about, you know, when, when someone brings you their cliche and, mm -hmm. and you go, that's not for me. But then you have the wisdom to go, but that clearly is what, brought you through mm -hmm. I just think there's something really yeah there's something so wise about being able to reflect that in that moment and we've all had it and we and if we're totally honest we've probably all done it we probably all spewed a few cliches over people in our in our years of you know mm -hmm. but but actually the reality that actually what often people are giving you isn't isn't actually just the worst the worst answer it was just the one that worked for them you know mm -hmm. Like, you know, the mm -hmm. everyone's favorite Bible verse on their fridge magnet that, you know, you might know is ripped out of context and not for them. <laughs> but actually, what does it matter? Because clearly it means something. It needs to be there. Yeah. One of the things I uh, find very disconcerting about the book was I don't know what you think. Like anyone, my, you know, my, my bookshelves behind here are, are filled with books where people tell me what they think. Like, you don't mm -hmm. do that. You literally give me the chance to start this book by going, I don't believe in God and then finish on a journey. And all the way through, I have absolutely no idea what you think about suffering. I mean, it's really <laughs> disconcerting. It's like, uh, <laughs> like it's, it's really, it's, it's, it is. Cause it's like, as someone who, you know, loves to read theology, often what I'm wanting to do is figure out what that person thinks. So I can then go, what do I think about that? You don't give me yeah. that chance because you essentially force me to make my own path, my own journey with this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess then the personal question, not because I'm not that I need to know what you think, but I do, I do want to like personally for for our podcast in particular. How do you move through suffering? Well, one of the reasons that it was easy for me to do that is because I think there's a lot of different kinds of suffering, and so I genuinely don't think that there's necessarily one best approach. So if I stub my toe in the night, I have a lot of suffering, but my explanation for that is going to be entirely biological. Yeah. This is a protective mechanism yeah. that helps me da 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 da, yeah. right? Um, yeah. That's very different from if I'm in 
a, a relationship of spiritual abuse, mm. for example. Mm. Now I need I need a, a thicker account mm. of of evil yeah. to deal with that. And so, um, and then there are other things where you just kind of look at them and you say, I have no idea. Mm. It's it's a complete mystery to me. And so I think. I, I draw on a whole bunch of these and, and one of them, so the Thomistic view was one I didn't know very well before writing this and, and researched it thoroughly and then thought, oh, you know, that actually works. I mean, it's totally incompatible with everything else I believe, <laughs> but I really like it, <laughs> uh, you know, and so, and so I can draw in bits of that. And I think the, the, um, the purpose of that book is, is not to give people even an answer, it's to train them to think like a theologian, mm. right? Like I'm, I'm tricking people into doing really, really hard work. Yes. Uh, because I'm, I'm asking them to make the decisions where normally the decision is always made for them. So I'm, I'm delighted that you couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting way to offer up, I guess, like you say, to force people to think it like a theologian. Because what you're not doing is going, this is my introduction, this is where I start, and by the end you're going to end mm -hmm. up there. You're going to end up somewhere very different. One of the things I loved about writing this is, is Zondervan were so generous with letting me do crazy things. <laughs> so the, the very first page, right, you open it just yeah. as the first decision. <laughs> and so you can, you know, I start at the beginning, I need to read from page one, yeah. you know, or there's, I hate, okay, this, this is one of those confessions. I hate introductions to books. Oh, yeah. I'm like, just get on with it. So I just give that as an option, like That's skip brilliant. the introduction, you know, read, read it later, you know? And ironically, there was a misprint, which was my, which was my, um, uh, my fault in the, in the editing stage. And I don't know if it was subconsciously uh, a fault, but one of the things I really wanted was to not have any indication that there was a map at the back uh, or a table of contents, yeah. which are yeah. all at the back of the yeah. book. And as it turns out, those of all the page references I give in the book, those three are wrong. So the only three that what? first point you to the back of the book. Oh, yeah, it's are... the wrong page number. It's the wrong page number. <laughs> so the three that are meant oh, yeah. to orient you send you is, entirely the is wrong Is there way. a map? Page 158. 158. I've got a blank page. Uh, and then, okay, is there a table of contents? 179. Well, the book doesn't have that many pages. Uh, yes. And take me to the acknowledgments. <laughs> Uh, one five five. Um, where am I? Oh, I'm just in the middle of a bibliography. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Chapter thirty-four. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. Oh, that's amazing. So, so ironically, so anybody trying to like get the answer uh, beforehand is you should have just owned that. You shouldn't have that. confessed to that. I'll cut that bit. I don't confess to that. That should be well, like a very <laughs> clever authory trick to really disorient us even further than the book already does. But yeah, I mean, Zondervan said this was the first book they've ever done where the page, you know, the table of contents was at the back of the book instead of the front. And even then, I was I was trying to push for not having a table of contents at all. But but you know, wiser heads prevailed. So the book. Uh, no, I'm going to recommend it again to people. It, it starts the big question, why is there suffering? But then what happens at the end of every chapter, you can decide from the beginning, but at the end of every chapter, you decide mm -hmm. where you go next. And that takes you backwards and forwards through the book and then eventually brings you to an end. Again, the book doesn't have a conclusion. Love that. I do really like that. that it has about seven conclusions. Well, that's exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, kind of like, you, this, I got to the end of mine and sort of went, I think I'm finished. It's like, it's like, it's really, yeah. And I, I guess then, You've talked a little bit about some of the things you didn't know in your own. If if there was one, if there was one thing you wanted people to take from it about this question of how do we move through suffering, is there one lesson that you've learned personally, or one thing that you kind of you know when you do something, you say something, or you write something, you put something out there, you sort of have a wish. What what what's your kind of your your deepest hope for the book? Hmm. My my deepest hope for the book, I think, would that would be that people would draw on the richness that the Christian tradition provides, mm. that it would be a sustained exercise in listening to others. Because yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a skill that's being lost more and more. And, and I, I'm not very good at it. I don't, I don't listen well. I'm constantly interrupting people and then going, oh, Bethany, stop interrupting. I just get too, you know, so, so I'm not a good listener, but, but this is my, this is my attempt. Listen to people you disagree with. Yeah. And instead of just pointing out why they're wrong, try and spend time figuring out why this makes sense from their perspective. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
you then think about the question we're sort of answering. I mean, we're not really answering any of the questions in this episode, but that's okay. I'm happy with it. But you think about the question we're in, which is how do we move through suffering? And you think, well, actually, how much of the not flinging cliches that people would happen if we started with listening well and and actually allowing yeah. people and, and draw? Yeah. Okay, we need to make our third choice. What would be on your music playlist? Oh, my my music playlist is is entirely eclectic. Okay. I love all kinds of music, um, but I I don't spend time sort of finding what I like. So okay. my my music uh, playlist is an eclectic collection of things that have been given to me, things that have fallen into my lap in various ways. So we'd have everything from you know Michael W. Smith to um, uh, the Killers to Vivaldi to okay. country, okay. you know. So it, it 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 it's going to be a little bit of everything, okay. really. Do you have music on when you write? I'm always interested in what people. When do you have do you have hmm. something you go to? Do you go to like one of those playlists of like writing music, or do you have stuff? Yeah, I think uh, Bach's uh, cello mm. concertos yes. performed by Yo-Yo Ma are great because I know them really, really well. And they're just sort of, they, 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 you know, trigger my mind yeah. into that, okay, for the length of this CD. So it's like people who do the Pomodoro yeah, yeah, yeah. technique yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, you get, you get something like that. That's about an hour long. Yeah. And then you think I'm just going to work very hard until these until are done. Finished, yeah. Um, I think Mozart's uh, violin things are good as well, but things, anything with words um, confuses yeah. me. So I can't, I can't, I yeah. can't do, I can't do words yeah. and stuff, but you know, if, if I was, if I was going to be doing the type of work, like administrative details, then I want the kind of thing you'd use during a, a cardio okay. workout. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, your, your pop dance tunes yeah. and that kind of thing. Okay. Oh, interesting. Maybe that's actually why I get I get I'm such a terrible administrator when it comes to details. It's probably because I'm I think I can listen to words. Uh, I'm 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 the kind of person where you know the finance people are always going, you missed this detail, you missed that one, and it's probably because I'm rocking out to two. Well, I was about to say, why did you suddenly just write pump it up, pump it up, pump it up now in the midst of this budget? I don't understand what's happened, Bethany. This is not, these aren't even numbers. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I get yeah. that. I get that. Um, question three on our hypothetical hike is this, how do you receive joy? Oh, uh, food with friends. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, give, give me, give me a dinner with people I love. Mm. Uh, and that, that is... That is what fills me with, I think, the most joy, um, both because I love food and I, I love people. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think if I have any sort of more well, <laughs> substantial. Well, I want to. Well, I, well, I want to ask you because obviously your work. So the work you're you're working on right now, it it sounds heavy, like you know, if mm. you're if you're if you're kind of. Theological exploration is around the fact that, you know, what are we, you know, climate change isn't going to stop. What are we going to do? That isn't necessarily the lightest of touch. And, and we know from, you know, 20 odd episodes of this podcast that it's not all about happiness. We, we know that there's this difference. But even so, finding joy in that heaviness must be challenging at times. Uh, it, it certainly can be. Um, but I think it also makes you really, really grateful for what you have now. Mm. So I sort of think I'm in a warm room. I have more than enough yeah. food here. You know, during the pandemic, we we got a glimpse of what it was like to have bare shelves at the supermarket, yeah. you know, which is a normal part of life for lots of people on earth. Yeah. And so I think, you know, knowing that that is coming again, mm. you know, maybe even more soon due to this conflict. Mm. Um, makes you makes you just grateful for mm. for what what is now and 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 saying you know i'm not immortal we don't have all the time in the world makes you all the more grateful for the moments that you do have and i think again when you move around as much as i have had to mm. do in my career you you realize how how precious and um passing mm these moments are and so I think I think in a way it is quite grim and and there are points where it is very depressing mm. but there are other points where it just it 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 forces upon you the mystery and the wonder of being alive mm. which is something that we actually lose quite quickly 
Yes. We have this amazing ability to get used to anything. Yeah. So, you know, you, you get a palatial new house and you're like, oh my goodness. And then, you know, five days later, all you can think about is scrubbing the toilets. You know, there's too many of them. Uh, nowhere, to, nowhere to put the Hoover. <laughs> it's like, I know, the Hoover I know. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, you know, and so, so it just kind of jogs mm. me out of that and, and lets me see the sort of wonder again. You write in the book about miracles. And uh, again, I, I wrote this down. Um, because because you, you one of the one of the things that comes out of of the book is this question of where is god in suffering what what role can god have or not have how active or inactive and you you write this uh, i can't remember which chapter it's in but it says sometimes people get carried away with seeking miracles if a miracle doesn't happen people assume god is not present but equally people can camp around a miracle confusing it with the reality to which it is meant to point mm-hmm. this sense that i guess that everything has has kind of meaning like you know you talk about the gratitude being being grateful for this moment rather than waiting for the extraordinary to kind of happen mm-hmm. how important do you think that is for people in terms of being grateful receiving joy all of those things in their day-to-day oh i i mean i think it's crucial and 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 you know psychological studies on sort of gratitude have said you know it's kind of the healthiest emotion yeah. it's it's the thing that correlates most with satisfaction yeah. and with other things yeah. but the problem is we've forgotten how to pay attention yeah. we don't we we have you know and so i i uh, one of one of my um sort of extended family members was here for a visit and he's he's buddhist and i i love mm. I love uh, my Buddhist friends and, and Buddhist family because they they often bring a lot of wisdom. Yeah. And so we were talking about what does it mean to, to pay attention, mm. which is something important to both Christian and, mm. and Buddhist traditions. Um, and so, uh, you know, he says, you know, I'm trying to remember that when I when I eat to just notice that I'm chewing and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I said, Oh, and he's like to notice that I'm swallowing. Yeah. And I thought, oh yeah, you know, when was the last time I did that? Yeah. And he just looked at me, he said, when was the last time you were aware that you're eating? Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, I don't even, I don't even pay attention to right. the fact I'm eating, yeah. let alone chewing or swallowing yeah. or anything else. Yeah. Um, and so how can we be grateful if we're not even, if we're so on autopilot that we're not even aware? Yeah. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about the book, and it sort of ties into to this question, I guess, is that you very deliberately don't fill the book with tragic, horrendous stories of mm-hmm. suffering. And you talk about that. You mention it quite a few times that you, you didn't want to do that. When I guess so many suffering books that people may or may not have read, they all, it's almost like the, the writer needs to point us to the darkest part of humanity so that we can even begin to talk about suffering. What what was consciously behind the decision not to do that in yours? Why, why didn't you want to do that? Yeah, two reasons. One, I, so during my PhD, when I was reading all these books on suffering, mm. I actually had a really hard time with mm. it. Um, I was kind of traumatized by this and that led into depression, yeah. which was also, you know, about moving across the world alone, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it just, I, I, it, it felt impossible to read a story about a girl being horrifically used by by guards and then tortured to death in front of her family and then turn that into abstract logical yeah logical you know my brain just couldn't do that transition like I needed to weep that I'm part of a species that does things like this and and how could I how could I then concentrate on the argument and so I found that disjuncture really difficult I found it problematic that these authors were just happy to use these people's stories there was no permission granted there was no you know, their, their horrific experiences were just used as sort of data, raw data to, to, to chomp and, and then to prove their, whatever their apologetic point was. And I just hated it. And so I read Eleanor Stump's book, uh, Wandering in Darkness, and she just said, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. You know, I'll use gentle things. And that book I flew through. And I could, I could, my brain was able to work with their, her arguments and follow them because I wasn't being emotionally traumatized on yeah. every page. And so later on, I, I looked up some of the neuroscience and it turns out, yeah, 
when you're emotionally aroused, your analytical abilities diminish. Um, and, and, and so I, I'd had a sense of that. And so I thought, you know, I'm not going to do that. But the more important part is that um, the, the experience that matters most to this question is the experience of the person who's reading the book. Mm. And so if, if I don't use any stories, then they can fill in with their own stories and ask, yes. does this match my experience? And if yes. it doesn't, they can move to a different one. Yeah. Whereas I think often what happens is you read this horrific thing and then you think, oh, well, I haven't really suffered. So this yes. isn't an important question for yeah. me. And I think, no, if it doesn't, there's no, there's no actual scale of, of suffering. There's simply suffering. Mm. And so I think, I think to just give people room, A, sort of mentally and emotionally, but B, room so that they can bring in their own story and ask, does this match? Was, was what I was intending with that. And again, I, I, again, you know, just what you set out to do, you've done, because again, in, in reading your chapters, I was able to then insert some of my own experiences in a way that didn't feel kind of like demeaning or like I was putting in my silly problems. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it welcomed me and which I thought was really interesting. But also then as a reader, like you say, I think it just, yeah, it didn't require me to be utterly traumatized for me to begin to have a conversation about this you know, quite ethereal question that has a, a real world impact for me. So yeah, it yeah. certainly, it certainly did that. And I think along that same vein is I refuse to use any of the big words because this, this is a, this is an area that's been dominated by philosophers who love nothing more than a tiny distinction that mm -hmm. they need to put another five syllable word on. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it's just not fair that people have to sort of trudge through years of learning to yeah. make sense of the outsides of these arguments and so yeah. i just thought let's um you know i i basically sort of wrote the book that i i think i would have really liked to read as an undergraduate that's just plain spoken we don't mm. most of the time the big words are, are are sometimes they're really useful but a lot of the time they're just a way of, to show off well they're useful um, if there's no other word but if there's another word yeah. why not use that one right it's like yeah. it's you know the I, it's a huge frustration for for me when I'm either reading or particularly in preaching. It's like if you can yeah. say that more simply, say it because actually the people yeah. in this room don't need to find out how clever you are by finding out that they yeah. didn't know something. Like if you don't have another one, use it and explain it. But if you've got simpler words, use the simpler words. Like come on. Yeah. Uh, one more question, one more choice. So the choice first, but actually this is quite an easy one because I already know the answer to this. Uh, we ask people what they bring in their snack bag, but you've already told me in the book when you're walking, you <laughs> like cheese and apples. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Any, is that it? Well, you know, to be, to be, so I, I brew my own beer. Okay. So if I was going on a walk and I wasn't driving at the far end of it, I'd probably bring a bottle of, of British ale, you know, that I'd brewed at home oh, as well. Okay interesting maybe maybe some bread maybe some bread oh yeah that's quite good that's quite good i might bring some peanut butter to dip the apple into oh that that is true yeah yeah i'm a big peanut butter yeah, fan i mean i that. think it's a basic food group in its own right well north you america you're north american so that is that is this <laughs> yeah. that is one of the rules right <laughs> I, i'm tempted to go to my kitchen so so when i moved to the to the uk most of the things like dairy and stuff is yeah. so much better here but but i love fake peanut butter mm -hmm. I, so you know what i import is 2.2 kilograms <laughs> of peanut butter in this massive jar and anyone british comes in and goes what is that yeah. abomination oh, no, and i was like this is how peanut butter ought to be absolutely no i love it no i think you're right i think on most things we we do beat we do beat you chocolate all that kind of, we we beat you on most oh, yeah. of that stuff but there's a few bits peanut butter being one of them okay so cheese apples bread you're bringing the homebrew beer i'm bringing peanut butter I think we've got awesome. a good snack bag. We're going to have a great, yeah. The final question, Bethany, is this one. How do we mature in service? I think by taking our work seriously, but not taking ourselves seriously. Yeah. Now, I have to, I have to say, that's a line I heard Eugene Peterson say, so I'm just plagiarizing from someone it's much fun. wiser than, than myself. But I think, I think that's the key, because I think if we take ourselves seriously, uh, then we think that there's some level of progress that, you know, my, my service should become more and more and more important yeah. as, as I keep going. But if we take the work seriously rather than, than ourselves, then we put our hands to whatever is mm. there. And I remember uh, Eugene Peterson sort of talked about 
after 30 years of pastoring this one church. And he said, I want to, I want to, I want to um, write a book someday called how to grow your church from 30 to 330 years, <laughs> you know, and um which I just, I just loved. And then, and then he said, you know, he had his goodbye party and then he was, he was, you know, so this big celebration of his ministry. And then he'd walked, he walked around the church in the normal way before he, he locked up at the end of the night, went into one of the washrooms and found that some kids had just made a mess of it. So the last service that he did to his church was he cleaned up the bathroom, mopped it, you know, and, and this was, this was the end of his pastoral work. And I just thought, that's somebody that I want to be like, you know, someone who after a party in your honor says, Oh, the washroom needs to be mopped and and cleaned and, and just doesn't think twice about doing that. And I just thought, yeah, I think, I think that's the case. You talked right at the start in your answer about change, about having to shift your view of what success looks like. What impact mm-hmm. has that had on your, both your maturing, but also, I guess, in serving as well? What impact has that had on you? I think two things. One, I'm not sort of beholden to the local gods. So in in the academy, there are, you know, gods of success that everyone must, you know, make their sacrifice mm-hmm. to in order to succeed. Mm-hmm. And I've just never done those mm-hmm. things. So instead of writing another monograph, I spent two years writing writing this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, which gets me no points in the academy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, no, you know, but, 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 um, so it's, it's meant that um, I haven't worried so much about that projection yeah. that I'm, I'm making on the wall. I'm just asking God each day, how am I being faithful to you? Yeah. How am I serving your kingdom? Wow. Um, and letting that be my goal, I think. And, and the, the end result of that has been that I um have done crazy things. Uh, you know, I took on a question like the problem of suffering with on a PhD, and that was not smart. Like that, that was not strategic. You know, that that ship was ready to sink so many times. You know, but but it, but it, but, it, but it also means that you know nobody in the academy. You know, generally we 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 lock ourselves into little corners, and there is a place for that. I don't yeah, want yeah. to demean people who who do very specific things I think I think that that can sometimes um be derided in a way that I don't want to do but um I think that there's also needs to be a place for people asking big questions yeah. that you know I'm never going to be adequately able to answer yeah. by the academy yeah. standards yeah. so I mean my current work draws on you know economics and on migrant issues and on theology and on uh ecology and there's no way i can know enough about that to do a disciplined work in in the way that you know and so but um but i think it's important to do even though i know i'm largely gonna fail yeah you know uh, and that's yeah. okay because I think that that it, it I, I I will fail to do a job that's up to the standard of the various specialists who read it. Yeah. But I I can fail. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> then then they'll help me and we'll all learn together. Yes. Um, yeah. I think that's. Yeah, I think that's absolutely it, isn't it? That sense of that willingness to a like you say not get caught up in the strategy, not make strategic moves. Mm-hmm. But also then at the end of it to go, actually, the work I'm going to do is going to add, but may not be the, will will, will never be the final word. Because none of it ever will be. I mean, that's the thing. It never will be. But we can convince ourselves, oh, I've written a great book or I've written a blog or I've done a sermon on that. Oh, I've done the training on that. You know, we, we kind of, we can convince ourselves we've shut the book and nothing needs to be done. Whereas actually when we see ourselves more as, well, you talked about it, didn't you? When you talked about people and 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 land when we see ourselves as from the land rather than the owners mm-hmm. of the land i guess that then equates into this in terms of that space right when you see yourself as the guardian of that space as the only person who can add to that space as the person who has the right to speak that into that space then you can convince yourself that your word is the final one when you see yourselves as part of the grand ecology of all of it coming together then you're way less likely to do that yeah and there's there's a tradition um in sort of christian thought that that makes a difference between um, curiosity and study, hmm. and so um, curiosity is actually a vice in in the Christian tradition. Hmm. Um, and there's there's a great book called the the Vice of Curiosity, and this was brought into me by by one of my my friends and, and mentors, Sarah Williams. 
But the, the idea is that curiosity is that sense of I need to have mastery over knowledge. Yeah. So I'm going to learn so that I have the power that that knowledge grants me. Okay. And yeah. so what it is, is it's, it's a never satisfied desire trying to reach for power yeah. and for the control that that power allows yeah. you to have over those around you. Like if you want a description of how the academy goes wrong, that's it. Yeah. Whereas study in, in someone like Augustine's thought is, is the pursuit of loving, knowing more what we already love. Mm. So it's like when you when you get into a relationship with somebody, you're not trying to get to know them better so that you can manipulate them to, to meet your needs. Yeah. You, you, you're getting to know them within the context of love, yeah. not to use them. And so we can treat our subjects like that mm. as, as something that we're getting to know. We're getting to know um, ecology. We're getting to know economics, yeah. not as something that I'm going to use to control you know, and then control my destiny. I'm going yeah. to build my career yeah, out yeah, of learning yeah. these things. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to be a lover of this knowledge. And that's study versus sort of the curiosity path. Wow. I what what a way to finish. <laughs> uh bethany honestly thank you so much for coming on to the podcast i was really excited when when i found out you were coming on and, and then when i when i got hold of the book and i'm going to say the title again and i'm going to recommend it again why is there suffering a pick your own theological expedition uh, i was really thrilled and and to get to chat to you about it has just been such a pleasure thank you so much for coming on to the podcast I, i've loved it thank you so much great to be here well, another huge thanks to Bethany for coming on the Altar Rim podcast. And that latest book again, it's called Why Is There Suffering? A Pick Your Own Theological Expedition. It really is worth getting a copy of uh, to kind of journey through it. In the same way as we journey through our hypothetical hike here on the Altar Rim podcast, the book just allows you to answer questions and really delve into the question of suffering. It's absolutely brilliant. That's it for this episode, but don't forget to share the podcast across your social media channels. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you could give the show a rating or write us a review. All those things help us get the show heard by even more people. And you can also now access our brilliant sketch notes and small group questions that accompany each episode. Just search for the All Terrain podcast or click the link in the episode description. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next time with another guest who'll be facing the four choices, answering the four questions and sharing their wisdom learned along the way on the All Terrain podcast.